I have like eight recordings of Taylor saying Ryan's completely right now, and you better believe I'm going to be using this. Oh my god! I've still got your recording of you saying that Loma is better than Uzik. So really, I'm happy. Like, you can you can mutually assure destruction. You could record me saying anything, big boy. I am happy. I can go to the grave a happy man. Boxing. Hi, 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 boxing. Come see the tights, watch how they fight with just everything. They hands and feet and bones and knees. This is an art of boxing you would all love to learn. Hi guys, welcome to the Eight Limbs Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Wagner, and today I'm going to be tackling some listener questions. We were on a brief hiatus for a while because I got busy with work and a little bit lazy, but I'm excited to be back to our regular recording schedule. For our first few questions, I'm calling in some aid from my esteemed colleague, Taylor O'Higgins, amateur boxer and boxing expert on the fight site. Taylor will be joining me to answer a couple questions by friend of the site, Farhan Yusuf. First question is, talk more about that discussion we had on feints versus throwaway punches. So, in terms of how how feints work versus how throwaway punches work, the first thing that stands out, obviously, to me is that with throwaway punches, you can actually throw the punch. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that, there's a, a couple things that that means. Um, so, if you're... God, the, like, the, the you're, patrons get what they're paying for, you know? <laughs> they really do. <laughs> Sorry. Literal analysis from us. But no, if you're, say you're feigning a jab to draw out a right hand, there's only kind of like so convincing you can be with that. Um, a lot of it is in the entry feint, like how you're moving your feet with the feint. If you're just kind of sitting there and pumping out your jab hand, it's probably not going to do a lot. Um, so the openings that you can create and draw are kind of different. If you're using throwaway punches, you actually throw the punch. So the opponent is going to see that opening in a different way than if you just fainted it. If you look at like Guillermo Rigandau, he'll he'll kind of like mimic those little punches um, to give his opponents the opening. If you see someone actually rotate their hips and shoulders through as they throw the right hand, it's a much different kind of opening than if you just see them kind of twitch a little bit like they're going to throw it. So it's it can be more convincing in a lot of ways if you're trying to draw a specific punch. Also, because you're actually throwing the punches, it's a lot better for like occupying someone's vision and someone's guard. Like M- Max Holloway, uh, if you watch any of his fights, he'll be in there like pumping three or four little punches at the guy's guard just to distract him, to get him looking at something uh, so he can't see what's, what's coming at him and from where. And then as soon as they're kind of overwhelmed by the little throwaway punches that you're not putting a lot on, that's when you hit them with a big body shot or a big shot through the middle of their guard. Nick Diaz is great at that too. All right, I'll throw this over to you now. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of going to start with a similar thing to say. Um, the thing is with feints and stuff, you're completely right. If you're not really like using your feet and, and like making it convincing and stuff, you've got to actually establish the threat first to make the feints you know, effective. Um, there's no point just dancing around, pumping out a jab without moving your feet and stuff, you know, and it's, it's just not going to establish the threat. Um, so I agree with the same kind of extent that, you know, um, it's a it's more convincing, an actual throwaway punch, because, um, by the way, you know, 
thank you for paying for this. You are actually throwing the punch, uh, as the name would suggest. Um, yeah, and it's more convincing. But there's some other stuff as well. I, like I think about when I when I think of throwaway punches and stuff, they're not even necessarily throwaway. I mean, they're like they're patting, pity patty kind of punches. You mentioned about Max Holloway, um, but there's some good things here as well. Um, and it kind of varies, but. Guys who throw like pity patty punches. Say you, you, I, I love to do it. For example, you throw. It's like all um, you do, isn't it? Oh, I love it. Um, <laughs> you, say you throw three or four pity patty jabs on the guard um, and whatnot, and then you're kind of an opponent is used to feeling these pity patty, and then you surprise them with a you know a, a fully committed right hand, for example, and stuff. Yeah. Change like the power on it. Um, and you know it kind of links into all that things we talk about about varying rhythm um level all that kind of stuff but as well changing the amount of power you put on it you can just do a normal throwaway shot occupy the guard and then completely take them off off by surprise um with a more committed um you know fully stepping in with the punch there's a there's a few things and stuff i mean yeah for me one of the big differences is and you kind of mentioned this is about like guys actually biting on it like feints are really good if you establish the threat and stuff but I think some non-committal punches as well are really good for actually, um, you know, convincing guys of the threat um, more, if you get what I mean. Yeah. Another thing um, that I think is relevant is that when you're using a throwaway punch, you, there's more commitment. So, like, if you're using a throwaway rear hand, rear hand straight or overhand, your hips and shoulders are actually going to rotate into it. Uh, so that means that it's it's more convincing, first of all, to shift off that. Like, if you're... If you feint the the rear hand straight and then try to shift into a lead hook, it's a little bit less convincing than if you actually throw it. And once the opponent sees that, there's a better chance they'll try to counter or to, to back off. We were just, me and Taylor were just going over some Lomachenko clips, and one of the things he did against Walters was using that little rear hand to back him up um, when he was trying to avoid that counter uppercut to the body. So that's the thing. You can use that throwaway punch to back them up, and then you're in better position to shift through into southpaw or the opposite stance or whatever and hit them. And the same applies to takedowns. Um, you can do stuff like uh, a really common thing is when guys throw their rear hand and then kind of like overshoot it, like throw it a little bit from further away and overextend on it so they can step through to the opposite stance and hit the takedown. Uh, so that's an example of how throwaway punches resetting or like uh, having the follow through on the hips and shoulders can do things that feints can't. Uh, for for feints, they have the advantage of being being easier to kind of keep stay in your stance in position while you're doing it. So you'll see guys like GSP feigning the jab, baiting guys to open up and come at them, and then they'll duck in on the hips for the takedown. So they kind of present different takedown opportunities. Do you have anything more to add to that? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, for, like a throwaway punch, especially if you're using your hips, like loading up on the hip and then throwing, like, I don't know, a straight right as a throwaway or whatever, is inherently more risky. Um, whereas what I've always done, because, you know, I, I like to think, I, I, you know, feints is my kind of thing. Um, and there's less risk because it's you're not committing as much to it. Right. Um, yeah, no. And, you know, it's one of those things as well. I, they kind of work in tandem a lot of the time. I mean, we talked about Lomachenko earlier. Um, and, you know, as, as whoever's listening to this will probably surely know, or they should do at least, Loma over is it? Um, what they, uh, what one thing he does do <laughs> is um, he'll mix in not just feints. He, he's brilliant at drawing reactions, right? This is a guy who 
who collects and calculates information, he probes. And feints give away a load of information and stuff, loads of information about what an opponent is going to do to react. But the reactions themselves can be far more committal um, if it's more of a far away, in, in my opinion, at least. I mean, there's one particular sequence that stands out to me, and it's against... It's, it's, um, it's Is it Duran Barkley? Oh, okay. No, it was, it was longer against Roman Martinez. Although I can think of one from Duran Barkley, and I'll see if it lines up with yours in a second. Um, but yeah, he uses a throwaway punch. He literally just throws it. In the, it's, it's not even aimed remotely at Martinez. But it's, Martinez is so on tenterhooks because of all the fainting and stuff that he instinctively covers up and then looks to circle at to, um, to open side. And then Loma knows it's coming and stuff, is able to cut off the angle and punish him. Um, so, yeah, there's, you know, more committed reactions. You know, you can still get draw some really committed reactions from, from just feints and stuff. Um, you're, you're familiar with Kalambe McCallum 1, aren't you, Ryan? Yes, um, I don't know if you remember it too well, but in that fight, McCallum's reactions in the first one are quite um, exaggerated, shall we say. Um, he reacts quite visibly to, you know, Kalambe's feints and whatnot. And, you know, that's part of the reason why Kalambe is able to constantly circle out and get away. In the rematch and stuff, he's not able to, he, he doesn't react in, in such an exaggerated f- fashion. He uses a lot uh, more like proactive head movement and defense yeah. to close distance instead, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of position and stuff where, you know, that's the kind of a bit of a limitation of feints and stuff. You're able to do, you know, if you're getting those exaggerated reactions that you want, cool, they're great. You know, they can be used to not only gain information, but actually, you know, serve as part of your game plan and whatever. But, you know, there's some of the limitations when they start to, um, you know, maybe they won't have the effect you want. Like, as you said, McCallum starts to be a bit more proactive with his head movement, doesn't really react as as um well exactly i don't know how to say as, as visibly you know as physically yeah. uh, as he does um so you know there are limitations to both um you know you're selling it more with a throw away um but there's risks with selling it more yeah for sure and along the lines of what you were saying about how they work in tandem with one another uh, if you look at like any kind of volume puncher they're going to use a lot of throwaway punches uh <clears throat> so it's a great way to rack up volume Especially to to kind of like maneuver your opponent to the spots you want him to be in the ring or cage or fighting area without expending a lot of energy. Even someone like Diesel Noy, who's known for these powerful clinch knees, if you watch his fight with Samar, he spends a lot of the early portion just kind of feigning him back to the ropes, throwing lighter kicks to get him to move back. And then once he's got his back on the rope and once he's kind of established that pressure, he'll go crazy with the knees. Um, another example that comes to mind, Lidawada against Yadvicha. Lidawada uses a lot of those rapid-fire throwaway jabs off the back foot to prevent Yadvicha from closing distance and clinching him. So it's a great way to move your opponent around in the ring, establish your ring positioning without expending a lot of energy, as well as piling up volume. And the more you get those throwaway punches going and the more you put volume on your opponent, the, the more effective the feints are going to be because they're going to keep they'll expect that volume coming back at them. And like Taylor said, they get more and more jumpy. Um, There's one I can think of um, as well for boxing. Um, I, I know you're familiar with this fight, Ryan. Uh, Maidana Mayweather won, where Maidana crouches and then he'll throw the jab upwards from a crouch position, like double up on it and stuff. 
um, in, to, to do what Ryan said, basically, to manoeuvre his opponent to exactly where he wants him. In this case, he wants Floyd against the ropes. Floyd get, backs up in straight lines and whatever. Um, you know, and that's partially aided by the fact that he's already established a threat. He, he's established already that there's the threat of the overhand right. That's his, that's his go-to punch. So by flashing those, um, those two upward motion jabs from the crouching position and stuff, he's able to actually you know, push Mayweather back and dictate the geography a little more where he wants him. And then the second question from Farhan was, how can you tell a fighter is using defensive positioning as opposed to just reacting when you watch footage? Um, so one thing I'll say about this is I kind of, I don't know that you should really invest too much effort in trying to like, trying to tell exactly whether he's reacting or whether he's being proactive because of the point of positioning and the point of fundamentals, positioning, footwork and all that is that it, it kind of allows you a certain anticipation. Um, when you watch guys like James Tony and Floyd defend huge swaths of punches, they're not seeing everything coming and like reacting to it one by one. They've developed a system that allows them to, to know what they have to deal with and to yeah. eliminate certain strikes. And the, the thing about positioning is that being in in sound position within a strong stance and being aligned with your opponent means that you're better prepared to deal with what's coming. Um, and when you see fighters make defensive actions, they know what that's leaving open and they know what somebody's going to do to try to exploit it. So when Floyd, if you throw a jab at Floyd and he picks it off with his right hand, he parries it, then he knows you're probably either going to step into the left hook or right hand. So he'll have his weight on the back foot as he parries the jab, and he'll be ready to either... He just has to look at your shoulders and see how they rotate. If it looks like you're going to throw the right hook, he can just shift his weight a little bit onto his lead foot and cover up with his right hand. If he sees the the rear shoulder or hip coming forward, then he just shoulder rolls. And once he's, once he's done that shoulder roll, if you get further in on him and try to, like, try to swarm or try to throw a hard left hook... He'll duck under, like down to his waist. Once he's there, he knows that, what do you have? You can't hit him with the, the right hand, really. Maybe a chopping right hand, but it's not going to land clean. Mm. You can try to dig left hooks into him. But the most consistent way to hit him from there is to, to turn him, to, mm. like the Lomachenko does. Hop around and square him up. So then he'll, he'll follow the ducking down up by pivoting, like, I don't know angles, but like, I don't know, 90 degrees, and then coming up. If you, there's one sequence in the Canelo fight where yeah. Canelo throws a one-two, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Canelo throws yeah. the one-two. Floyd ducks down. Canelo tries to get in on him and throw throw a left hook, and Floyd just like pivots, uh, like completely around him, and then counters him. He did that to Maidana a lot too. Yeah. So there's... the point of this yeah, is that you, they have a system that allows them to know what they need to deal with, and they're always very aware of exactly what their opponent's options are in any specific position, and their game is based around limiting those options. So, like, I'll present you an option where you have to pick one of two or three things, and that's a lot easier to deal with than a, than if I'm sitting there being like, shit, is he going to throw a right hand? Is he going to throw a left hook? What's he going to do? Yeah, so it's all that. about anticipation and fundamentals allowing them to choose what to deal with. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I'm going to go on a quick tangent about a few of the things you said, mainly because everyone loves a good tangent. Everyone loves a good tangent. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, some really interesting points. And, you know, Ryan's completely right. There is a system, and especially with a lot of the guys he mentioned, you know, fine defensive fighters such as Mayweather, such as Tony and whatever. Um, like, specifically with the duck and pivot as well, he's completely right and stuff. You know, um, one thing that Mayweather really loves to use when he's, especially when his back's against the ropes, is, you know, folding over his hip, the duck and pivot out. Um, and, you know, guys have tried their best to to deal with this there's a few there's a few little schools of thought how to how to do this there's the punch uh, like the a shovel hook yeah yeah ryan's favorite <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> the one true tactic to win at boxing um you know there's a shovel hook which is you know kind of can be done my preferred one which is try and control the head um you know i i would personally you know unless you're lomachenko and you just step around i mean if you watch Loma Rigo and stuff, and you look at a guy yeah. who's consistently ducking and pivoting like Regan Doe, and like Mayweather just, com- uh, Mayweather, sorry, Lomachenko just completely has a field day with it. Um, it's the worst nightmare for a duck and pivoter to face someone like Loma who's just going to be able to step around and turn you into a pretzel. Um, you know, and it, it, uh, there's one particular sequence, uh, it's one of my favorites because, like, fair play to Rigo and stuff, because everyone always talks about, um, they say, oh, yeah, no, Loma really got some, Loma really put it on him in the end and stuff. But I remember checking the CompuBox stats after, and he held him to, like, a ridiculously low connect percentage. And I know, like, CompuBox is bullshit. But, like, like I do, I do remember watching it and thinking, not a lot of these are landing clean until he started, you know, cranking up the volume to 11 once yeah. he figured him out a bit. Um, but do you remember that sequence where Loma, like, does a really cheeky treble up on the uppercuts? And yes. it's not even, like, hard shots. I wouldn't say throwaway and stuff. They're probably enough to knock out Rigo if it landed clean. Um, but like, you know, I remember just, he, he kind of snapped his head up a few times with a few, like, uh, sorry, anyway. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I had a little lomagasm. Um, yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, you're completely right. You know, it's a system. And if you start to take away tools in that system, um, and one thing that Ryan mentioned was, was anticipation, which is often the key um, for guys who have this kind of system. Um, you know, if you've got a, if you've got an incoming call, Ryan, I do not. Oh, I heard like a da 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 da. Oh, I might have um, my phone on vibrate on the table. Wait, no, I don't. Might have been from your oh, side. Probably. Accused, uh, bitch. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, no, uh, you're completely right. A lot of systems are predicated on anticipation. Um, and if you start to take that anticipation away, and there's, you know, there's ways you can do this. Um, variety for example um giving guys different looks and you know because the way a system works is you know you put in an input you get an output so scramble the inputs or you know unorthodox being unorthodox is another thing that you know is is the real um bane of someone with a like a defensive system especially if you're confusing the inputs um you know and there's some guys you'll be able to see as well who you know, once that's taken away from them and their tools are reduced or, you know, their system is compromised, you'll be able to see from some of their reactions and stuff. One of the guys I covered quite recently with, with Lukash was um, Israel Madrimov. Um, and as much as I love Israel, and I really do, I think a lot of his defense is largely predicated on good defensive positioning. Um, you know, being in positions where he can hit you, but you can't hit him, lest you punch through yourself and whatever. Uh, so it actually remains to be seen, you know, whether he 
whether his defense holds up. But he's not like a guy like who's able to, you know, is is reflexive with his defense and stuff. It's based on really sound like defensive positioning. And then you've got other guys who are a bit more reflexive based. And then you, you see some errors like creep in and whatever. Um, you know, throw themselves off balance, stuff like that, leave themselves open. Um, so, you know, yeah, the, the guy, the top, Ryan's completely right. The top guys have a system. Um, and I've run out of things to say on that. <laughs> yeah, so to sum up, I think that think, not thinking of it in terms of uh, whether they're they're reacting or just using positioning, but rather how positioning informs their reactions and allows them like like we said allows them to to be able to kind of funnel their opponent into throwing certain strikes and obviously we've talked a lot about boxing this gets a lot more complicated when you add in like takedowns and kicks and all that so that's a big reason that you see (laughs) why you see mma fighters um who who are not nearly as as good with their defense like if you look at elite mma fighters the def- the defensive aspect of the sport hasn't developed nearly as far as muay thai or boxing and some of it is obviously because they have a lot of things to deal with uh so they can't like work on their boxing all the time but a big part of it is that there's so many things coming at them that they don't that it's very hard to get that kind of system down where you can kind of limit their options and have a great sense of anticipation of what's coming obviously the best example is jose aldo and we've written and talked a lot about this before um guys who use distance control in mma can do it very successfully in many ways um like the karate guys like uh machida and Wonderboy, but they run into the problem of when someone can force engagements Sorry, I heard you say Wonderboy. So, do you mean kickboxers? Like, yes, like, I, mean, I mean, I'm talking about some kickboxers. of the greatest kickboxers in the world yeah, right here. Yeah, thank you. We're thank talking you. about elite kickboxers. Yes. Thank you. But when they run into those guys who can force striking engagements, like <laughs> pocket, pocket shootouts and that, they kind of falter. Um, another thing to consider in MMA is a lot of people kind of use reactive takedowns as part of their defensive system. Like, GSP was always very hard to hit clean. He was never super sharp in terms of boxing defense. He had a great sense of distance control, which helped a lot. Uh, a great jab, which again helped to enforce that distance and prevent guys from creating exchanges with him. And if somebody did get in and start to put combinations on him, he didn't have that kind of pocket defense system that someone like Aldo or like Jimmy Rivera does. But instead, he would he was he had very good early stage defense. So if you stepped into him with a jab and threw a right hand, he'd probably duck under the right hand. But he couldn't. He wasn't the kind of guy that could consistently fold over his hips and slip like hooks and straights all coming in a salvo. But what he did is as soon as guys opened up, he'd duck in on, on the hips and get a reactive takedown. So that takedown was kind of part of his defensive system in the pocket. And like Taylor was saying, when you can take that system away from part of that system away from these guys, it can cause it to fall apart a little bit. So you saw in the Hendricks fight where GSP couldn't get in on those reactive takedowns, he had a lot more trouble preventing Hendricks from creating exchanges. So yeah, I think the the big point here is to not focus so much on uh, whether they're reacting or defending through positioning, but to realize that positioning allows them to react in a much yeah. better, more natural, easier way. I completely agree. Um, I mentioned Maidana Mayweather earlier. 
Uh, one thing as well that's noted and stuff is even with a guy who's got as good a system as Floyd, right? He knows exactly what's coming. He's got his Michigan shell. He's going to either shoulder roll the right hand. You know, he's he can um, drift the rear glove up to protect from left hooks and whatnot. Even someone like that, as good as he is, when a guy like Maidana, who most people consider quite crude, even if, you know, he's a lot more technical than people give credit for, you know, when he was able to get Floyd against the ropes, you know, put his head on Floyd's chest, like push backwards, compromise his shell. And, and basically Mayweather's whole shell gets compromised and whatever. And he's left to just literally defend with his forearms and stuff. And you've got all these weird body shots and like chopping overhand rights coming from weird angles. Yeah. Uh, and, what a, and you've got a guy who's one of the best defensive guys I've ever seen, you know, um, for boxing. And you've got a guy who's this defensive master who, who rarely even gets hit clean. And he's looking at the ref like, please help. You know, um, <laughs> he's clearly not comfortable in this situation stuff. And that's what I mean. If you can take away parts of the system and whatnot, you know, um, things do. It, it's very much anticipation for me is like the big key word to tie in with defense, um, just in general and stuff. And if you're able to throw that off, um, then you'll find that. Uh, Ryan's completely right. Your reactions are based off of your like defensive positioning and whatever is a, say it's a system and your reactions are based off of that rather than just splitting it into defensive positioning reactions. Um, and, you know, guys whose system is compromised in one way or another, you know, it starts to fall apart, um, even with guys as good as Floyd, um, just as a, a more recent example. Absolutely. All right. I think that's about it for me. Taylor, thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure having you. No worries at all. Our next question is from Jack Slack, who asks, what's with the flute, yo? <laughs> okay, so what he's talking about is that instead of having like traditional commentary where Joe Rogan screams into a microphone, uh, Muay Thai has like a, a backtrack of music. It's called a Sarama, and I think it's an oboe, but I'm not 100% sure. But anyways, it's, it's like a traditional thing. Um, You'll see a lot of those kind of ceremonial aspects in sports like Muay Thai that are heavily tied to culture and not not like the the Western boxing and MMA that's been super almost like divorced from cultural associations. Uh, but the idea is that it's kind of supposed to mimic the action and intensity of a fight where it starts out uh, like rhythmic and slow and then picks up as the rounds go on. And Muay Thai especially is a sport that's tends to start out slow in the first couple of rounds. They use them as feeler rounds and then three and four are where the big action is. So the music kind of mimics that and picks up as the fight goes along. Now, of course, in modern Muay Thai, the action in round one and two is a lot, a lot more lackadaisical than it was back in the golden era. So if you're, if you're trying to mimic the action of the fight with music nowadays, you'd probably be better off just having nothing for the first two rounds and then pump the music hard in three and four. But I've heard a lot of people like complaining about, oh, I hate the, I hate the Cerama. But I feel like most of these people are MMA fans too. And really, if you're, if you're used to listening to Joe Rogan blather on for like 11 hours, that's, that's how long a UFC broadcast lasts, right? Like 11, 12 hours with like seven of those being commercials. But if you're used to listening to Joe Rogan, just scream at you in a mic and you, you can't handle a little oboe, I don't know what to tell you, man. I don't know. You're, you're beyond help. Anyways, our next question is from Matt Gioia Joy. 
Matt Joya. I don't know. He's he's one of our staff members, but I don't care enough about him to learn how to pronounce his last name. So this one is from Matt, the Guy BJJ guy, our resident Guy Dorp. Who is the next tie to transition to glory style kickboxing? First of all, I kind of resent the kickboxing being likened to glory, but um, I haven't heard any news about uh, any well-known Nakamoy who's interested in making the transition soon, but I'll name a few that I'd like to see. The first, I think Sangmini Sortiempo would do really well in kickboxing. I think I've talked a lot about Sangmini in the past, but he is he's probably the best example of the southpaw double and triple attack in combat sports today. He's a southpaw with an amazing rear leg, super dexterous kicker, great body kicks, hard leg kicks. He works the rear leg really well. I think he has a few finishes by kicking out his opponent's rear leg. But um, the the thing that makes him special as a kicker is that he combines it excellently with his hands. He's also a very solid offensive boxer for Muay Thai, and he puts his punches and kicks together excellently. So the basic idea of the southpaw double or triple attack is that the the straight and the rear leg roundhouse pair together. If I throw a rear straight at your head, you're gonna natu- you're gonna try to parry it or slip off line, and both those reactions open you up for the kick. If you try to slip it, you're slipping into the kick. If you try to parry it, your hand is coming away from the side of your head where it could be defending the kick. Same with the kick. If I if you go to block the head kick, your hand is wide on the side of your head and it's not prepared to defend the straight down the middle. The straight and the round kick obviously have very similar preliminary motions. So if you're if you're standing in front of an opponent watching for what he's going to do to try and react, um, you'll see his hips turn and his shoulders come through. But the motions are so similar that that doesn't give you an indication of if he's going to throw the punch or kick. So it's only it's usually pretty late in the motion where you learn if he's throwing his hands or the kick. And it's super easy to feint one into the other. Uh, probably the most consistent setup for head kick knockouts is just throwing up the straight as a little throwaway punch while you turn your hips into the kick. The opponent bites on the straight, slips their head right into the leg. So Sangmini's great at that. He's very he has a very good general striking game too. Uh, he has sick left hand elbows. Those obviously not gonna come in handy in kickboxing, but He's quite sound defensively, great distance control, and his hard southpaw body kick will help a lot with distance control. If you, you see guys' ties that convert to kickboxing, use that southpaw body kick, pitch panamrung and sitachai. They use it to prevent guys from stepping in. So if you watch sitachai or pitch panamrung's fight with Robin Van Rysmelen, every time he steps in, he's met with a hard body kick or knee, and it makes it a lot harder to close distance on them. That's something that Sangmini could do very well. And those guys have had to develop uh, their boxing a lot more as they have as they started fighting higher level competition in kickboxing. And Sangmini has already kind of done a lot of that. He's a very good offensive boxer, and I think he could pick up the defensive stylings he needs to succeed against punchers in kickboxing. Panpayek Sichev Buntham is another one I'd like to see. Not this is not the more famous Panpayek, Panpayek Jitmoing Nan. Sitchev Buntham is more of a boxer than anything else in Muay Thai. And I don't think he's actually he's done any international competition, even though the strongest aspect of his game is his hands. He has really slick boxing. Um, 
uses throwaway punches well. He he's good at working around guards. His fights with Yod Panamrung were re- both really good studies in using boxing combinations and feints and all that to get around the long guard or Dracula guard. He tends to lose to clinchers or kickers because, like I said, the big thing with him is his boxing, and that's a lot lower scoring than other weapons in Muay Thai. So I think he'd be really suited to kickboxing. Chalam Paranchai is another guy that I think could have a lot of success in kickboxing. Again, he's a pretty well-rounded striker like Sangmini, uh, kind of a generalist, but he operates really well on the outside. He has good footwork, good boxing defense. He has some slick counter punches, like he'll do the inside ang- the slide back uh, to the inside angle and throw a counter straight kind of thing that you see from good southpaw operators. He's got a good outside kicking game. He's also pretty solid in the clinch but he doesn't rely on it uh, to the extent where that would be a problem in transitioning to kickboxing. Our next question is from Ed Gallo, my friend and colleague at the fight site, who asks, which MMA fighter has the best chance of being competitive with a decent tie? This is a bit of a tricky one uh, because the sports are so different that I really don't think there's much opportunity for an MMA fighter to cross over and do well in Muay Thai. I kind of think that... If someone were to have success transitioning, it would probably not be from like doing similar things that Thais already do in Muay Thai. Someone like Peter Yan or Jorge Masvidal, there's a lot of stuff in their game that you see in Muay Thai. Masvidal obviously has kind of a Thai striking style. Uh, lighter lead leg, throws lots of lead leg teeps, uh, switch kicks. And Peter Yan, he doesn't really operate like an Akmoy tactically, but in terms of like the broad idea of what he's doing, like he exploits clinch transitions brilliantly. He has a great eye for clinch entries and he parlays them into effective offense really well. But if if you try to like go over into Muay Thai and fight ties and play that kind of game that things that the ties are already doing, it'll probably just be like them but worse. So I don't think they'd really make it. I think the best bet would probably be for like a big puncher to come over and maybe get like a few a surprise knockout or two over like lower level competition that's still kind of relevant um, before like everybody catches on and just shuts them down completely. But I really don't think there's too much opportunity for MMA fighters to transition to Muay Thai because it's so the meta and scoring system and the tools that they use are so different from anything anybody sees in MMA. And there's not a lot of crossover between the arts in terms of who's training with who either. So yeah, I think there's a lot more opportunity for Nakmoys to transition to MMA than reverse than the reverse. Which leads into our next question. Tommy Roosh asks, having seen Loma, Loma Lukbunmi, cross over into WMMA and the UFC, what male Nakmoy currently fighting would you like to see or think would do good crossing over to MMA? Um, so this, again, presents the logistic problem that there is not much crossover between the arts. Nakmoys aren't training MMA, and MMA fighters aren't training with Nakmoys very much. So anyone that does transition is not going to be coming from any kind of background of grappling other than what they do in Muay Thai. None of these guys know how to wrestle. I don't even know if they have wrestling in Thailand. I don't know. But if they do, it's probably not very good. But I think, like I said, for 
the transition to kickboxing, I think Sangmini would do quite well. Again, the, the southpaw double attack is obviously something that we've seen a ton of success with in MMA. And I think he could... A fighter with his style would be both well-prepared to exploit the openings of MMA fighters on the feet and pretty well-positioned for takedown defense. If, assuming that was a thing that he developed and that came along as he was coming up in MMA. But he doesn't have like a super aggressive pressure style that could lead you on to reactive takedowns. Wouldn't be too easy to back up against the fence. Would be kind of like almost like a Leon Edwards type with better cage craft, a better sense of awareness for where he is in the ring or cage, and obviously worse grappling. The next question is from our Twitter friend, Aiden, who asks, what's the most important quality for someone who primarily wants to box in MMA? A lot of the things I would suggest for a boxing heavy style are similar to things I would suggest for any kind of striking style, like attention to, to details like positioning and footwork, the fundamentals and all that. But the way they specifically relate to boxing, I think one of the most important things for a boxing-heavy style is the ability to gradate your offense. Me and Taylor talked a lot about how Max Holloway uses those little throwaway punches to, to set a rhythm, to condition his opponent to a certain pace, and then break it with heavier strikes to catch them by surprise, or to rack up volume without gassing himself out. No matter what style you have, there should always be a process in place for making your main weapons count. Uh, so this gradating your offense, mixing up heavier and lighter punches, throwaways with committed punches, allows you to not only maintain your cardio later in the fight, but it allows you to gather information and get the openings for bigger punches without, first of all, without exposing yourself and without misfiring too much, draining your own cardio, throwing heavy punches and missing, or giving your opponent committed reads that they can build off themselves. Another thing that's very important is attention to setups and the ability to draw out strikes. If you watch like a mid-level MMA fight, there's often a lot of skilled boxing, but there isn't, the guys aren't setting their offense up very well. Like a lot of guys will have good technique. They can jab well, they can throw their straight punches, they can throw in combination, but there's not a whole lot going on in terms of the setup and the thought behind how they're entering and creating exchanges. If you watch some of the better boxers in MMA, like Peter Yan, um, Jimmy Rivera, Conor McGregor, not only are they very skilled in exchanges, but they pay a lot of attention to how they're entering exchanges and how they're manufacturing them. Conor, through his pressure, forcing opponents back to the cage, making them panic, and countering them when they lash out. Peter Yan has a bunch of crafty setups. One I really like from him is entering with the that skip-up lead leg round kick or throwing the rear hand, overshooting on it, and then shifting forward. Um, he works really well with his to measure distance and gather information with his lead hand, too. He'll, he'll pump out kind of a non-committal jab, or even just hang his hand out as like a little pawing thing, not jabbing with it, but just kind of extending it and range-finding. He'll palm his opponent's head, threaten collar ties, threaten clinch entries and all that, and it allows him... <clears throat> Not only to have that threat in their face that's making them kind of panic, making them react, making them do things that he wants them to do, but it's it's also giving him a way in, a way into the clinch or a way to draw punches and counter and exchanges. And in terms of drawing, this is something really important for a boxing-heavy style. Regardless of whether you're primarily operating on the counter or the lead, 
one matchup that a boxing heavy guy often struggles with in MMA is outside kickers. And a big part of playing a boxing heavy style in MMA is knowing how to deal with people who are kind of natural counters to that. So if you find yourself fighting an outside kicker who's trying to strand you outside punching range and move away when you come in and counter your entries with his kicks, you either need to be able to pressure and back him up to the cage, uh, keep him on, on his heels so he can't get those kicks off, or you need to be able to draw out the kicks at range, work the entry feints, keep moving in and out with foot feints. Um, a great example of this is Volkanovski against Aldo how he was standing just a little bit outside kicking range and picking him off with those little inside leg kicks so Aldo couldn't get his bigger, more committed kicks off. And in terms of drawing and exchanges, it goes back to what me and Taylor were talking about with the importance of anticipation in defense and offense. You're a lot more likely to succeed in those kind of exchanges if you're forcing your opponent to throw on your initiative rather than just leaving it up to them and reacting to them. Our next question is from AHBAI1986, who asks, where do you rate Fadeng like John Wayne Parr, Liam Harrison, and Ramon Deckers? Also, who are some good Fadeng prospects or current contenders other than Haggerty? I don't want to say too much about this right now because I'm planning on doing a full episode about the best Fadengs in Muay Thai pretty soon, but I'll say that for Deckers and Parr, I, they're very good fighters, but I don't consider them like among the greats of Muay Thai. Current Fadengs, there's um, Rafi Singpatong, or Rafi Bohik, I forget forget which one he goes by now. He's quite good. He's not quite at the very elite level, but he's beaten some solid ties. He's got a pretty solid general striking game, strong boxing, hard leg kicks, good elbows, and he's pretty good in a clinch too, which is rare for a Fadeng. Um, There's also Nadaka Yoshinari right now. I think he's pretty young too. He's He's like 19, yeah. Um, he was the Roger Damnern and Lumpany 105-pound champion a while back. I think he won the Lumpany title in 2019 and the Roger title in 2018. He recently vacated those titles to move up in weight, so that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. I actually haven't watched too much of Yoshinari, so I can't talk too much about his style. Our next question is from friend of the show, Simon, who asks, Who would win, Prime Jose Aldo in a fursuit versus Prime Chad Mendes in the full black latex? I would remind Simon that this podcast does not exist to entertain your personal fantasies. Next question. Sadman on Twitter asks, what are your thoughts on Savate kickboxing? I actually haven't watched too much of Savate, but it's something I've wanted to take a look at for a while. I actually asked Luca Bordon for recommendations for good Savate fighters, but then I didn't watch any of them yet. I will at some point. One guy I like a lot is Francois Panaccio. There's a couple of his fights against decent kickboxers on YouTube. He fought Deckers. He has a really interesting style. The Savate guys have really tricky movement. I'm not exactly sure what the rule set is like in Savate, but I think only certain kicks are permitted. I don't think you're allowed to kick with your shin. It's only like they have those specialized boots and you have to land with the boot or something like that. But they have these these kind of weird kicks that they do. Very good linear kicks. And Panaccio especially has a really tricky rhythm. He uses a lot of that kind of bouncing footwork to set pace and to set a rhythm with his bounces and steps and then suddenly break it and surprise guys. But rather than having like a really wide stance and hopping in and out constantly like karate guys do, 
he has a really narrow stance at kicking range and kind of like dances around really good lateral movement takes angles very effectively and he has a like those really quick hop steps into kicks that narrow dancing footwork disguises it really well and if you watch the deckers fight it's really hard for deckers to get a read on him he'll he'll be constantly like doing that bouncing and then deckers will try to throw a hard kick and he'll just kind of smoothly glide out of range so i don't know too much about savate itself as an art but francois panaccio is great i'd highly recommend checking out his fight with deckers jun asks quintessential muay t fighter it's a kicker and how to spot or differentiate between one versus a moi femia. So a moi ti, or moi te, I don't know how to say that, is someone who specializes in kicks. Often a southpaw who specializes in the left leg round kick to the body. A moi femia is the slick outfighter archetype, like Saiyanchai, uh, Samart, etc. I guess there's a lot of crossover between these two, and there's a lot of fighters who aren't necessarily one or the other they're very similar styles but if you're talking about someone who's a more pure kicker versus a famia the difference would mainly be what their intention is what their most consistent weapons are are they moving around in service of landing their kicks or are the kicks in service of the movement uh so what i mean by that if you look at a guy like super like kiatmukau his game is based around the rear leg kick and he doesn't move a lot. He moves just enough to set up his kick. He's not like taking huge angles, circling around the ring and wide arcs. He, and he's not like necessarily trying to prevent guys from getting in on him. He wants to land the hard kick with the assumption that if you're able to power through it and get inside on him, his his score and damage from the kick is going to be better than anything you're able to do once you close distance. So instead of taking those big side steps or circling and pivoting off, he'll take very small steps. He'll often step back with his lead foot first instead of his rear foot. So he's he stays planted on that leg when he's moving backwards so he can immediately snap into hard kicks. One series of fights that's a really good study for this question is Singdom Kiatmukau's fights with Saiyanchai. I'm actually writing an article on that right now, so that was well-timed. So... Saiyanchai in all their fights is taking a lot bigger angles. He's trying to turn Singdom. He's trying to like bedazzle him with the outside movement. He wants Singdom to come forward so that he can pivot away and lead him around the ring and look like that kind of typical Femur controlling the fight by making their opponents whiff and being slick. Singdom wants Saiyanchai to come forward so he can walk him onto the kicks. He doesn't. He's taking angles and turning Saiyanchai, but they're very small angles. They're almost imperceptible. They're not the kind of thing you're gonna look at and be like, "Oh wow, look at him! He's turning him. He he just matadored him, pivoted away, and made Saiyanchai miss." He's taking really small angles to make Saiyanchai just pick up his leg a little bit and turn, and then as he's turning, he can plant and kick him hard. So there's a lot less movement from Singdom, and that's because he wants to be planted for that power kick. Um. And if you look at their, their attempts to close distance, they're a lot, quite a bit different too. Saiyanchai is doing his like typical hop step thing, the, the little shuffle he does where he'll cock his rear hip as he steps in to feint the kick with the rear straight. And he's using that as an entry to kind of fake Singdom out, try to get him reacting so then he can like angle off and hit him with something else. Whereas Singdom is a lot more kind of measured in his distance clothing. He's not taking those big hop steps. He wants to take short steps and be planted so he can explode into hard, powerful kicks. So generally, 
if you're talking about like a pure kicker, they're going to be less mobile than Femus because they want to be constantly planted and in position to land those big kicks. Like super let Kiat Mukau will set up just a little bit outside kicking range and he wants his opponent to walk onto him so he can slam that hard kick into him. Whereas someone like Saiyanchai, he'll counter guys moving forward with kicks, but he's not staying there after he lands them. He's throwing a lighter kick so he can immediately get back into his stance and move off. Whereas Singdom, uh, Superlek, etc. want to land the kick really hard. And then if guys get in on them, because they're going to be a lot more static and it's going to be easier for guys to close distance compared to a Femur fighter, they'll usually have a strategy for that. Like Singdom and Superlek are good in the clinch. They'll tie up when guys get on the inside to prevent them from getting off punches. Or they'll go to a long guard and counter with kicks in the pocket. Both of those, both Singdom and Superlek do that really well. In terms of quintessential Muay Thai, obviously Singdom and Superlek. Another one from the golden era that's really good is Mati. His fight with Wang Chinois or Palanchai is great. You should check that out. Singdom or Akrit from the golden age is another good one too. Our next question is from Grand Moff Larkin on Twitter. How are KNR and Runkit 7 feet tall but fighting at 61 kilograms and is this cheating? Why do you believe that it is so, and that their wins over Rod Tang should be annulled? On the contrary, I think KNR should have been allowed to throw ground and pound when he had mount on Rod Tang. Rod Tang's lucky KNR wasn't sharpening up his armbars before that fight, because he spent more time on top of him than Habib did on top of Barboza. Our next question is from friend of the site and patron Daniel Albert, who asks, I'm not quite sure how to word this, but what and how do combat sports metagames lend themselves well into transitioning into one another? Why does this work for some and not others? So he's asking about transitioning between combat sports. I think one rule of thumb uh, that's generally pretty true is that it's much easier to transition into a more open rule sport than it is into a more closed rule sport. What I mean by that is that there's been a trend of a lot of people from different backgrounds, specialists, coming into MMA and successfully adapting their game. You don't see the reverse side of that so much, though. You don't see MMA fighters going into boxing and have a lot of success. You don't see them going into kickboxing, etc. Part of the reason is probably due to the pace structure. Uh, kickboxing, Muay Thai, and all that submission grappling don't pay as well as MMA. So if you're an elite MMA fighter, why would you do anything else? But more importantly, because I think it's much easier to come in with a very strong skill set in one particular area and then adapt that and add ancillary skills to cover your holes than it is to develop a narrow skill set very deeply if you don't already have that. Uh, so sports like boxing and kickboxing and Muay Thai, etc., especially the striking sports, more so than grappling because there's much more of a history of grapplers coming into MMA. There's a lot higher level grappling in MMA than there is striking. But these striking sports, they require so much, such a deep skill set and such a specialized area. And trading MMA just doesn't equip you for that at all. You're, they might spend a little bit of time with training with boxers, training with kickboxers, but they're not, they don't have enough time to get those skill sets to that really deep level. You need to succeed in those sports. But if you're coming over from boxing or kickboxing, especially kickboxing, because obviously boxing, you have to add the kicks. But you already have a big part of the skill set you need to succeed in MMA. And obviously you have to adapt that. You can't just come in and do your normal kickboxing thing. You need to adapt to MMA striking. You need to adapt to wrestling, etc. But you already have a big natural advantage in a certain sense. 
and it's easier to add on ancillary skills from there too. Like when you're a kickboxer coming over, you don't need to become an elite grappler. You just need to figure out how to develop the skills necessary to make the thing you're already great at work. But if you're transitioning from MMA to like boxing, you're not great at anything at all. And the guys that are actual boxers are just way better at everything that is involved in boxing than you are. And it's not a matter of figuring out how to make your already existing game work in that kind of environment. It's a matter of learning to box or like actually learning to do the sport that you're transitioning to. A notable exception to this exists though in the relationship between kickboxing and Muay Thai. You rarely see, pretty much never see kickboxers transition to Muay Thai at a high level. Whereas knockmoys often have a lot of success transitioning to kickboxing. There's pretty much always at least one tie in the pound for pound top 10 kickboxers. Buka obviously was one of the greatest kickboxers in the history of the sport, etc. Petrapanamrung, Sidichai, etc, etc. The reason for this is partly due to the natures of the sport. Kickboxing, the rule set is pretty straightforward. The scoring system, pretty obvious. Muay Thai is very inscrutable to non-ties. And a lot of even successful fadangs have a lot of trouble adapting to the rule set and figuring out how tie scoring works. And obviously, the clinch is an area that kickboxers are, are often not prepared to deal with. So if you go into a Muay Thai fight from a kickboxing background, you'll be faced with an entirely new metagame and scoring system. And like, like I said, even very successful fighting fighters struggle to adapt to that scoring system. Whereas the transition from Muay Thai to kickboxing is pretty straightforward. But another big reason for that is because of the talent level. Thais usually start training from ages like 5 to 9 years old. They're basically bred to fight in Muay Thai. There's not as much talent in kickboxing. Nobody's like being bred to be a kickboxer from age 5. And there's only a couple countries with a very strong kickboxing tradition. And they don't focus nearly as hard on it as Thais do on Muay Thai. But generally, I think that rule holds true, that it's easier to transition from a more specialized sport to a more open sport than it is vice versa. Our next question is from Andrew. As somebody who doesn't watch much Muay Thai, who are some names I should watch fights of? I literally only know Buka, Sainchai, Pechpanarung, and Lerdzilla. If you want to get into modern Muay Thai, I'd recommend the two fights between Talanchai PK Sainchai and Sangmini Sortiempo, and both of those guys are great to watch. Tawanchai is a slick outfighter, great southpaw kicker, has a nice side teep, um, really good off the back foot. He uses the clinch really well to intercept his opponents trying to cut him off and come forward. So he'll like he'll kick them up on the outside and when they get aggressive and try to close distance and punch, he'll tie them up in the clinch and then turn them onto the rope so he can get back into the middle of the ring. Sangmini, I've already talked a lot about him of course. Another guy I really like is Kong Torani's Sorsomai. A great general technician overall, uh, really slick on the outside, good defensively, very sharp offensively, just an all-around great fighter. My final recommendation is Samangdet Nor Anawat Jim. He's an elbow specialist, but he's pretty good all-around. He's a lot of fun to watch too. He's a banger, has a very high KO rate for Muay Thai, tends to lose by stoppage when he loses too, so his fights are often exciting. He knocked out somebody earlier this year with an elbow, I think it was Tanapech, but I'm not sure. But yeah, he's a ton of fun to watch. Abo's the shit out of guys, and it's awesome. I don't want to overload you, so I'll leave you with those four. Samangdet Nor Anawat Jim, Tawanchai PK Sainchai, Sangmini Sortiempo, and Kong Torani Sorsomai. I realize that 
the spelling is not obvious by what I'm saying, so I'll link the podcast in an article and attach fight videos of these guys so you'll know who they are. And my final question is from my esteemed fight site colleague and on and off love interest. Sure, sure, sure. Ah, fuck it. You know who he is. Anyways, how successful would a striking style like Diesel Noise be in MMA? Even MMA Muay Thai guys like RDA, Rafael Dos Anjos, and Shaman Marais don't seem that similar to a dude pressuring behind knee strikes like Diesel Noise did. Past the big takedown defense question, how many MMA fighters could deal with that on the feet? So the question is, how would a heavy Muay Cow style do in MMA, where someone's pressuring heavily with knees rather than with punches? This is an interesting one, because there's not a lot of precedent for this in MMA. The successful converts to MMA from pure striking arts that we see tend to be, it tends to be the more slick outfighters that have more success. Guys like Israel Adesanya, who can use already existing skill sets in like their footwork and distance management to defend takedowns rather than having to having to defend takedowns with actual wrestling often. I think the, that would be the biggest challenge for developing a style like that in MMA, that there's not really an already paved route towards it. If you have that slick outside style, there's a lot of guys you can look towards and be like, oh, okay, I can just kind of do what they did and adapt my game to MMA around similar lines. But with a Diesel Noi, Muay Cao kind of style, you don't really see that in MMA. You don't see kickboxers or Muay Thai fighters coming over and doing that. So it'd be it'd be harder because of that. You'd be kind of on your own in a certain way. Um, in terms of tactically and strategically what that would look like, I think if if the fighter was able to develop solid takedown defense, it could be it could work very well. It could be a very uh, coherent style. Often pressure makes it harder for opponents to hit takedowns. You can kind of force them to make bad decisions, force them into bad shots, make them panic wrestle. The ability to getting on the hips clean is very important for an MMA wrestler. And someone pressuring in behind knees like that, on one hand, it invites reactive takedowns in a sense, because you're constantly moving forward, you're going to be there for the takedown. But at the same time, like I said, it can be used to draw those poor shots out of the opponent. Um, obviously, the, the knees would act as a deterrent to changing levels, but they could also get you taken down if you get caught mid-knee. One thing I think would work really well is the the way Nakmoys use frames and use their hands both to set up clinch entries and uh, just to control their opponent while they're pressuring. Uh, so if you have like that long guard kind of thing, where you're stretching your hands out, fighting your opponent's hands, hand traps, controlling their head and framing off and all that, it can be really hard to get off successful shots. Um, an example of what that might look like is Anthony Rumble Johnson. If you watch his fight with Phil Davis, he has like very a very handsy style, so he's constantly extending his hands, checking his opponent's hands, physically maneuvering his body, and when Davis shoots, he's able to down block, he's able to frame his, off his head and stop the shot. And someone with a Moikau type style could have a lot of success with that, using their their hands as frames to stuff the shots, to control their opponent's head when they're trying to shoot, and punish them for it especially. Because you, if you try to get in on the hips and you end up framed off with bad posture, especially against a guy that has that skill set, that's a great opportunity to knee the shit out of them or to land strikes on the break and stuff like that. One example of this, and it's not the best example, but we're going to have to make do with it that I can think of is Marina Rodriguez, a women's MMA fighter. I think she just fought Cynthia Calvillo her last fight. Uh, she has 
kind of a Muay Cao style. She does a lot of marching forward with knees, switch knees, uh, using her knees to set up punches on the front foot, entering the clinch and all that. And she's she looks quite good given the competition she's fighting. Uh, obviously, women's MMA is a, an entirely different ballgame, and we can't really generalize what works there to what works in male MMA. But at the same time, women's MMA is kind of where we first got the impression of how a kickboxer could successfully transition to MMA. Before we had a lot of kickboxers coming into MMA in the male divisions, we saw Joanna Jinjacek and Valentina Shevchenko successfully translate their games to MMA. And while we can't entirely generalize it, we can look at principles of what worked there and apply that to male MMA. So looking at Joanna Jinjacek's career shows that a kickboxer with without a real grappling background can come in and develop legitimately good technical takedown defense. And it's not just that she's fighting bad competition. Obviously, it's weaker competition than there is in the male divisions, but her takedown defense is technically very good. Uh, she's great about controlling the head, uh, framing off, and cross-facing when her opponents are in on her hips. She has a good wizard, and she's very good at grip fighting on the cage, which is one of the most important things for for MMA specific takedown defense that you that isn't necessarily as applicable to normal wrestling engagements since you spend so much time on the cage and guys don't necessarily have to get you down on their initial entry if they can press you against the cage they have time to secure their grips and really work to tighten them up and get to a position they can take you down from and it's really important to be able to break those grips and Joanna is a great example of how to do that now in her last fight with Calvillo Rodriguez kind of beat her ass on the feet really bad and then just got taken down and got her ass beat. So it'll be interesting to see if she can actually solve any of those holes. But yeah, I think as long as the the fighter took an intelligent approach to developing and obviously got with a good camp, that kind of moist Muay Cao style could work well in MMA, especially since it's really not something MMA fighters would be prepared to deal with at all. Alright, I think that about wraps it up for today. As always, thanks for listening, and I will be back in two weeks with another episode. Suck them hard with your soul and then kick out and all. Ah.